Hi, everyone. Welcome to Refine and Grow with Justin and Lindsay. My name is Lindsay Allen. And my name is Justin Mueller. And this is your podcast for proven strategies on navigating and managing work life. So on this episode, we are going to talk about one of the best pieces of advice that I received from Shanae, which was don't try to understand why if you can't influence it. And I was telling Justin and Shanae just before we started recording about how each of my chapters in the book that we're highlighting this season, Refining Grow Lessons Learned on Navigating the Business World, are named after one of the best pieces of advice I received from a mentor. And I explained through the chapter what they helped me achieve. So this is intended to be a how-to guide. And don't try to understand why, if you can't influence it, really was how I started to understand boundaries at work or the swim lane that I needed to stay in. Because as a management consultant, you know, we often had documentation that said what we were hired for, but we couldn't see into the future. We didn't know every single thing we were going to have to do. And I was trying to understand what to say yes to, what to say no to. And I was interviewing for a role that I was really excited about. I was a management consultant, so I was interviewing with the client company who might be hiring me. There were other people from my firm also interviewing so that the client could pick the best fit. And I was really worried about how I had interviewed. And when I talked to Shanae, that's how this advice came up. But then I realized over time, not only did I not need to worry about whether or not I was going to get hired for the role because I had already completed the interview, I couldn't influence it anymore. It was a waste of my time and energy. But I also realized that I could apply that in a project setting, in a work environment. And so, Shanae, I kind of want to hear from you, where did that advice come from and how did you use it in your career? You know, it's interesting. This is one that I don't remember coming specifically from someone. So I think this is probably something that I learned real time on the job, trial and error. And definitely as a consultant or as, you know, someone who's walking into new places all the time or new projects all the time as a project manager, whatever it is, there are certain things that you have influence over and there are certain things you don't. And so I wish I could remember where it came from, but I'm positive that it was just, you know, trial and error and learning that it's just wasted energy if you're not having influence over it. You could better use that energy elsewhere. Right. Justin and I interviewed you for our last season when we were talking about what was some of the best career advice that you had received. And Justin had brought up Mm -hmm. how great you are at setting boundaries. And I imagine that don't try to understand why if you can't influence it was probably Mm -hmm. one of your mantras that you use to help set those boundaries. Can you talk about other sort of mantras or maybe rules or pieces of advice that helped you learn how to set boundaries, how to stay in your swim lane, how to understand what should I focus my time and energy on and what should I not or how I should prioritize that time and energy? Yeah, you know, it's really for me about how much energy you have to commit to something a day, whether it's physical energy, mental energy, whatever it is. There's a finite amount before you start not being as productive. And for me, it's, you know, how do I stay the most productive? And I know myself well enough to know what that looks like for me. So, you know, how do I stay productive and drawing boundaries around where I will be most productive. So a big part for me is knowing where I'm going to be 
tapped out and making sure that's not an issue on the regular. So a big boundary for me is I have three kids. And so I know that I need to have energy left for them at the end of the day too. So isn't realistic for me to work 12 hour days every day all the time, because at some point I'm no longer productive. I've become worried about what's happening at home or things like that. And so that's been a really clear boundary for me that I've been able to set is to say, you know, this is what I need to do for my kids and for my family at home. And so I know that at this point, anything beyond that, I'm just not productive anymore. So that's where we draw that boundary. Yeah. I don't even know how you work like four or five hours a day and have the energy for three children. It's a lot. (laughs) So you do have to divvy it out. And Justin's talked about this in the past where he said, no, you have to think about your brain. It's a muscle and it needs rest and relaxation in order to be more productive and work regularly. You know, I'm a classic introvert where I know that if I'm in front of a room for an extended period of time, I'm just toast. And so that's another way that I've been able to build boundaries too, is if I'm going to be leading a meeting for three days, then I need to do something quiet for the other two days that week to make sure that I give my brain a little bit of a rest. I love doing it, but I know that that then means I need to go do something quiet, heads down, and that's the best way for me to be productive in that situation. Yeah, I relate to that a lot because I'm an introvert as well. And following with the theme of setting boundaries, staying in your swim lane, giving your energy to what's worth giving your energy so that you aren't feeling overworked and unproductive. Another piece of advice we reminded me of, you said when we were in grad school together working on our master's, there was a professor there whose advice in one of our courses had really stuck with you. And that advice was to never care more than your client as a management consultant. Can you speak to why that resonated with you? Yeah, I think there's two reasons that that resonated with me. The first was, you know, we talked about this a little bit in one of the past episodes. You really have to judge and gauge your client's appetite for the work that you're doing. And so, you know, if your client is only able to work at a 60%, you need to meet them at that 60%. Giving them 100% or 110% is just going to be too much for them. That's the first thing. The second thing is I'm an idea person. I love big ideas. I love crazy ideas. I love to push the envelope a little bit. What I've learned because of this advice is if I have a big idea, instead of spending way too much time on it and going down you know, a long road with a huge proposal, I need to stop, talk to my client and say, I'm tossing around this idea. What do you think? Should I go further with it? Instead of really wasting time in case they're not into it. And so then if they say, yep, let's explore it a little bit, then we'll take it a little bit further. Because what I don't want to do is get really excited about something and then have it just not happen. I have an example for that. So I was working with a client. We were doing readiness and it was a nationwide project. And, you know, I love to do big readiness events that get people involved, get people hands on, the whole thing. And so in our team, we had sat down and thought, wouldn't it be great if we got a tour bus and drove the tour bus around the country, like set up all of these big events, make it like a carnival. This would be so awesome. And we spent days talking about this. So we had weekly touch points with our clients. And so we spent days before this touch point, presented it to the client. And the client was like, I don't think so. Let's put the brakes on. 
It will never get approved. The budget's going to be out of control. So we were like, okay. So over iterations and iterations and iterations, this giant nationwide event that we were planning ended up being three posters. The great crew. It was a perfect example of, you know, you can't hear more about this activity than the client does. And it was just such a great reminder of put the brakes on before you go too far down a road that maybe isn't where your client's trying to go. Yeah, I mean, I've totally done that. And I've seen so many other people do that. And it's almost like then you don't have any energy left to get the client what they need. You and Justin have very similar mindsets and approaches. And Justin, I know you would often tell me to kind of match my areas of focus to that of my client. And I think that advice also works if you are in an industry to that of your supervisor. Like what are their top priorities? Yours must align to theirs. Otherwise, you're going to run into this issue of wasted time and energy. Yeah, I definitely feel like we spent a lot of cycles sometimes on non-value added activities. And I think the comment made earlier, don't care more than how your client, that that was a sentiment shared to me by a former mentor of mine, Jen Wells. Uh, she said a very similar thing to me. She said, you can only care as much as your client, which at first struck me as odd. But then I've also realized I've wasted a lot of cycles caring much more and having a lot more anxiety than my client. And my client wasn't even losing any sleep or time off of a particular issue. It's really important to understand what is your customer or your client or your supervisor, what do they really care about? Where are they putting their emphasis and effort? What's keeping them up at night? And then better aligning to that. I mean, even right now, I'm calibrating with a, a new team and a new boss, and I'm trying to understand what they care about versus what I would care about rather than being my head against the wall to do the things that I think are important. I'm trying to better understand what they think is important and then creating a hybrid, if you will. There are things that I know are important and need to be thought about and considered that they may not be considering, but there are things that they're just not going to put time and effort into. And so I need to let go of those things and just focus on what matters to solve the problem and not all the things that I would like to do or think should happen, if that makes sense. Yeah, it actually is a great segue to another piece of advice about where do I draw the line in terms of where I spend my time and energy is you had also said there's multiple paths to an objective. You can be an observer and a learner of a different path than you had thought of. And so you don't have to put all your time and energy into convincing everyone why your path is the best. If somebody else has a path that's going to be followed, particularly your client or your supervisor, and you have to kind of let go, as you were saying, of what you wanted to do. I thought that helped to understand there's an objective we're trying to meet and there's multiple paths to it. We don't have to take mine. I could actually learn a lot more if we take somebody else's. Yeah, there's a couple of nuggets in there. Susan Anderson, with whom we all worked, she would often tell me that you likely have your preferred way of doing something and you likely consider your preferred way of doing something the right way of doing it. But that is not necessarily the case. Sometimes what we can dogmatically view as the right way is just our preferred method or approach to do something. And we need to create space and room for other viable options to accomplish the same goals. Said differently, Jen Wells used to talk about, and I know I've referenced to it, kind of the one, two, three rule. And that is, what is the business problem? What is the outcome we're trying to drive towards? Therefore, what's the approach we're going to take? And oftentimes in the business world, we lead with approach and we forget 
about the business problem we're trying to solve and the outcome we're trying to drive towards. And it becomes all about the approach. When it becomes all about the approach, you immediately narrow your options. In fact, sometimes we narrow our option to the one method that we are trying to go to market with instead of focusing on what's the problem, what's the outcome. There may be 30 ways to get there. Now we just need to find the best options for bridging that gap. So those are two ways of similarly saying the same thing, and that's that we can't get so stuck on what we think the right option is, that we lose situational awareness. We channelize our vision, if you will. We put blinders on and we focus on one way instead of looking at the options that are in front of us. Now, the converse of that is that you can sit there and entertain options all day long and never make a decision. And that can lead to analysis paralysis. There's a balance between the two. It's not that all options are viable options, but you need to look at what options kind of lead to critical path to close the gap between business problem and outcome. And you need to be willing to listen to the voices of those around you. And if you give someone on your team the opportunity to go tackle that problem, as long as they're on point, you need to allow them to tackle that problem in the way that they would do it, not necessarily in the way that you would do it. Yeah. I really like that advice because the way that I learned it was sort of project wide where they would say, okay, when you're going on a project and I'm talking about Hitachi and the folks you were mentioning kind of the bigger methodology that I had learned was what's the current state? Where are we today? What's the future state? Why do they want this project? And how are we mapping from getting to the current state to the future state? But what I like better about saying problem outcome approach is you can apply it in more ways. So when I heard you say problem outcome approach, instead of me thinking about, oh, okay, when I'm staffed on a brand new project, when I'm doing a new role, or you know, if you're a program manager and a project comes up, I need to say, what's the current state? What's the future state? And how do we get there? But the problem outcome approach can apply for me to communication as well. It helped me go one level deeper and say, well, this can apply in many situations, not just current state, future state, and then mapping out how to get there. But the problem outcome and approach I started to apply in meetings and in all of my communications, in my emails, in my one-on-ones, I had regular meetings with my client and I would always say, okay, what am I trying to achieve in this conversation? What are the problems? What are the outcomes that I want to have from this conversation? What do I need answers to? What risks do I need to raise? And then that would drive my approach, which would be the agenda. So I always put a lot of effort into what are my objectives? Why am I emailing this person? Why am I facilitating a meeting? Why am I having a one-on-one? And that really helped me focus my time and energy and effort into communicating well, having strong communication skills. That was how I drew boundaries in communication. And I know, Justin, you are the master communicator. I've worked with you so much and seeing you facilitate workshops and facilitate meetings and focus groups and just lead teams, you really do a good job of using analogies that land with people, but also communicating exactly what needs to be said and ensuring that we're all aligned to the message. So I want to hear your thoughts and tips and tricks on having boundaries in communication and you know how to focus that time that you spend on communicating and collaborating with others. 
Yeah, that's a big topic. And I feel like it's constantly changing and growing in that ability. And let's be very clear. I'm very, very good at communicating in a client setting and hopefully even a broader work setting, but those lessons don't necessarily come home with me. So nearly 25 years in, I'm still learning how to communicate well inside the house. Sometimes my boundaries are a little too tight. I need to open up my work boundaries a little bit into life. It's something I've grown in a lot over time. I'm still learning a lot. I'm learning stuff right now, like I said, real time. As I've progressed in my career, the client communication is really straightforward for me. It's almost intuitive, but that comes with practice, right? That comes with years of practice. But I'm still learning internally within the hierarchy of our organization how to communicate well. I used to think that I was excellent at communicating with executives, but communicating with client executives or third-party executives versus communicating with internal executives where there's sacred cows and landmines buried everywhere. And it's a lot more political, especially when you get up into the executive levels of an organization becomes much more political. And man, I feel like I'm back in single A baseball right now, learning how to hit, how to throw, how to catch. So kind of relearning those fundamentals all over again. But I go back to that one, two, three rule. That's something that I still remind myself with today. That kind of business problem outcome approach, I think fits whether you're trying to solution a multi-month or multi-year problem. But I think it also works when you're setting up a meeting or you're drafting an email. So a lot of the questions I'll ask myself now, because I'm back kind of at single A minor league baseball, learning how to communicate internally to executives, I'm speaking this stuff to myself all over again. So before I draft this email, what problem am I trying to solve, right? Or what opportunity is there that would merit this email? What kind of outcome am I driving towards in this email? Because you never write an email to an executive unless you're asking them to do something. So what do I want them to do? Or said another way, what do I want them to do, know, or say? And then, okay, so based upon that, what content does my email need to have? What do I need to draft? And then because it's an executive team, I want to make it very clear in the subject line of my email, for example, of what action I need from them. So I will put review requested, response requested. I'll put decision requested, colon, and then a quick synopsis in the subject line. And then in the body of my email, and I'm just using the email as an example. In the body of my email, I've now put this term that I actually adopted from my military experience, which is bottom line up front, or it's called the bluff statement. And it's bottom line up front, colon, and this is the ask. This is what I need you to do. And usually it's a clause. It's not even a full sentence, it's a sentence fragment. And then underneath that, it'll be like topic, bullet, 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 topic, bullet, 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 but no full sentences, none at all, not one. And so it's usually something that I can expect my boss, who's a senior vice president or one of the executive vice presidents to read in 30 seconds or less, because that's about all the attention span they have. So I, I highlight all of that, kind of go through that long, maybe slightly laborious tale to say, one, I'm still really learning. It goes back to the one, two, three rule, which I've talked about many times on this podcast, and just knowing your audience. Who am I talking to? The folks that I'm drafting emails to now, they don't need a lot of context, but they need to know what I'm asking them to do pretty spot on, pretty quickly. A lot of my customer interactions that I still have, those cats, they need context. And they need lots of context, but it's still figuring out how to frame that context in such a way that I'm not writing War and Peace or Anna Karenina, but writing something that's readable, actionable, and can be consumed in a fairly short period of time. And I think it was Hemingway basically said that it's a lot harder to write succinctly than it is to write verbose with your words, which I think I've just broken that rule. So hopefully that example is helpful, but I think framing things very clearly, what problem are you trying to solve? What outcome are you trying to drive towards? What approach or what content do you need then in your email? And then who's your audience? 
what do I structure in there to make it meaningful? I've read way too many Anna Karenina wannabes and it's painful. So it's like, what are you asking me to do? You just wasted five minutes of my time. And I'm not that cutthroat about it, but sometimes I get a little grumpy and I'm like, holy cow, I just wasted five minutes reading this email and I have no idea what they want me to do. So more to the point of putting boundaries around your life. I know a lot of quote unquote overachievers or hard chargers who will be up on email late into Friday evening on Saturday on Sunday, first thing early in the morning. And there are times legitimately where I'm at the gym and it's 5.30 in the morning and I, I might respond to something on the East Coast, but it's the exception to the rule. It's really important to set boundaries, particularly on your weekends, not just for the sake of yourself, for the sake of your client or your colleague, but also for the sake of your family. There were a lot of years where I was constantly looking at my phone and I was distracted. I wasn't present. And so I think it's my personal policy is when I go on vacation now, I actually remove Outlook from my phone. So I'm not even tempted to look at it. And I always set out of office notifications when I'm out of office. The second thing that I do is I pretty much stop responding to emails unless it's, I have a short list of people I'll respond to after like 5 p.m., 4 p.m. on Friday afternoons. After that time frame, if you and I haven't closed out on business, it's probably not going to happen. A couple times a year work over the weekend, if it's something that's really critical, or if frankly, I've just been a slacker and I got behind, that does happen. But I hold the weekends and the time off, DTOs, PTOs, time off, I hold that sacrosanct and I shut down. So you can create an expectation overtly or covertly. And so if you don't respond to emails over the weekend and you just set the expectation with the client over time that you'll respond on Monday, it starts to reset expectations and create a pattern of behavior that they then start to snap to. So I'm a big believer and you have a lot more control over your boundaries than you think you do. And hey folks, guess what? We replaced the president of the United States in a 24 hour period. We'll be okay if you're not on email for the weekend. That's all for today's episode. To order your copy of the book, Refine and Grow, Lessons Learned on Navigating the Business World and access additional resources, head out to our website at refineandgrow.com. And tune in next week for an all new episode. Thanks for listening.